In an early episode of the miniseries, The Crown, Elizabeth's husband, Philip, is helping to plan the coronation ceremony where his wife will become the queen. There is this tense, awkward scene where Philip and a few other men are standing with their notebooks in the back of Westminster Abbey, reviewing the details of the ceremony. Philip is adamant. He says the, the ceremony should be televised, and the other men are dead set against such an improper and unholy idea. They explain to Philip that after Elizabeth receives the crown, that he will then bow down before her. I refuse to bow down before my wife, he protests. And I remember thinking, that would be very awkward, bowing down on your knees before your spouse as though she has powers that you don't have? And I wondered, what impact will this moment have upon their marriage? Will he actually bow down before her just to satisfy the centuries-old custom? Or will Philip insist on a more modern equality with his wife, who is the royal heir? Philip pushes, and he gets his way. The whole ceremony is televised for the first time in world history. It's a historic moment that the world has never seen. And then comes the moment when Elizabeth sneaks behind the curtain and the crown is placed upon her head. And when she comes back out, Philip kneels before her. In today's scripture lesson, we read about another very complicated family drama. Joseph sits perched upon the throne and his brothers bow down before him. Does this make sense? to bow down with their faces to the ground while their brother sits up above them on the throne? Perhaps a little backstory on the Joseph family saga will help us decide what to make of this scene. Joseph is one of 12 sons of Jacob. His 10 eldest brothers are the sons of their father's first wife, and Joseph and his little brother Benjamin are the sons of Jacob's favorite wife, his second wife. So since birth, the conditions between these boys were ripe for jealousy. The elder 10 brothers are enraged because their dad plays favorites with Joseph. And so they decide to sell their obnoxious little brother into slavery. They saw over the years how it broke their dad's heart, and surely they must have felt guilty for all those years that they were estranged from their long-lost brother. But at least they didn't kill him as they had previously planned when they threw him into the pit. Now, in a surprising twist of events, Joseph rises in prominence, and he becomes the governor of Egypt. His ability to interpret dreams earns him the attention of the pharaoh of Egypt, let me show you a quick map of the region here. Joseph leaves his family behind in the land of Cana and moves down to Egypt where he becomes governor. And years later, this whole region of the Middle East becomes paralyzed by a seven-year famine. And so the elder 10 brothers still living in Canaan traveled to Egypt to grovel for enough food to survive. 
They don't even recognize Joseph when they enter the court and bow, bow down before their brother seeking sustenance. The whole story, well, it could be a Netflix miniseries. It's better than any soap opera. There's enough hatred and betrayal, enough lying and alienation, enough suspense and mystery to make you want to binge watch all the way through. Most of us know that families, because we are all part of families, they can be places that are havens of love and grace and joy. But families can also be places where we experience brokenheartedness and anguish and sadness. All of this, it's been brewing for decades. And then we pick up on the drama today. James Howell writes about this season in their lives. Time, it can embitter us, but time, it can also be the hospital in which the pained soul is rehabilitated. What will happen then when these brothers bow down before their baby brother on the throne? Well, it's not love at first sight. Joseph sets up a few tests for his brothers first. He inquires on the well-being of his father. He screens them for honesty. He requests to see his baby brother Benjamin. And then finally, he breaks down. Today's passage opens with this phrase, when Joseph could no longer control himself. Joseph loses control. The governor, the one on the throne, he sends everyone out of the room. Servants, press corps, private secretaries, valets, you're banished. And now it's just jo Joseph and his big brothers. And then Joseph weeps so loudly that all of Egypt heard it. Not only does he weep and sob, the Hebrew phrase says he gave his voice in weeping. Joseph has not forgotten what his brothers did to him. He says, come closer to me. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph, you know, he could have just shipped them a pallet of grain, a case of food to carry them through the famine, but he gives them more than food. He gives them their brother back. He gives them a whole family. He offers them their long-lost brother. Then he falls down, weeping upon his little brother's neck, and Benjamin also wept, his tears falling on the neck of Joseph. And the last line of the text says, he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after that, his brothers talked with him. It's got to be one of the most emotionally moving passages, not only of the Bible, but of all of literature. Theologian Leonardo Boff says that people in Latin America, they don't believe in God, they feel God. And that seems like what's happening in this scene. They are feeling the depth and the power of having been ripped apart by pain and hurt. And now the tears of compassion and sorrow flow amongst the brothers. How many families today 
are like this family, filled with mistakes and heartache and regret, and yet longing somehow to figure out how to be reunited as one family again. And in the Bible, it is this family, this family of Joseph, that represents the future of God's entire whole family. If this family fragments, the whole people of God fragments. I picture what happened in the Joseph story as much like what happens in our day today in what we often call a family intervention. <laughs> maybe you've been part of a family intervention, or maybe you've heard of one. Sometimes families have a family intervention to take away the car keys from grandpa who can no longer safely drive. Sometimes families have these interventions to confront mom about her, prescri her prescription drug dependency or another family member's alcoholism. When the family gathers, you can feel the tension in the room. The family gathers out of a sense of deep love, but they know that this whole conversation called the intervention could go terribly wrong. The family could fracture right here, or it might experience a healing breakthrough. And no matter what happens, tears will probably flow freely on one another's necks. The drama of family plays out in the larger human family as well. You might remember back in May that a member of our church and a man who sings in our choir, Glenn Crocker, sent Mike Graves and I a story on NPR. It described Jerusalem as one of the world's most stratified and divided cities. Jerusalem is divided between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And even as you walk through the holy place, the Temple Mount, you can feel the tension between the Muslims and the Jews. Don't stand there, move along now. And there are these watchtowers and armed guards making sure that no one crosses a line that they shouldn't. And when COVID first broke out, all the people in Jerusalem with COVID, whether they were Israeli or Palestinian, Muslim or Jew, they were sent into one hotel to quarantine together. Mike explained to you what happened with the Jews during that period as they celebrated Passover with different traditions in Judaism. But there was another part of that story. There was a 19-year-old Muslim girl who was quarantined there. She was walking down the hall of the hotel when she saw a young Jewish man on the floor doubled over in pain about to pass out. She called for help and she got the EMTs on the phone and they told her she had to stay with him and keep him awake until they could get there. And she didn't know if she could do what she was being asked because she didn't know if she was allowed to touch him without violating him, but she did and she saved his life. And then she went downstairs in the hotel and she found that there was a woman who was also quarantined there who was of Jewish descent and the woman was a stand-up comedian and she was telling jokes to a group of Muslims and Jews and they were all laughing and joking together and the residents of the hotel began doing exercise classes together, yoga and Zumba, and they were dancing together, and they realized that inside this quarantine hotel, 
that the Jews and the Muslims were no longer enemies, but one family. They even started laughing about how they could be a model for the whole country of Israel. They were like Joseph and his estranged brothers. A crisis, a famine, a virus had brought them together, and they could decide if they would remain alien from one another or if they would weep on one another's necks. Joseph says to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph sees in this tearful family reunion that somehow God is at work in relationships, bringing together a remnant of love where we as family members have already done too much damage. God weaves us back together to preserve life with this holy water called tears. They are the baptism of love. This Joseph story stretches all the way through 13 chapters of the book of Genesis, and the name of God is barely mentioned. But when God does appear, it is in the relationship. 1 John 4 says, whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. So the miracle of this story is that even a broken family is able to love again. It is what gives us hope as a human family, for this story is not only about alienation within families, but within the fabric of our worldwide family. When Joseph realizes that he is no longer the one in control, he sees that God's love is the prevailing force in this life. And that is when Joseph is able to bow down before his own estranged brothers. He is able to see that God is present there within them and between them. And Joseph's tears say to his brothers, you matter to me. Our relationship it matters. In his loss of control, he sees God at work in human history. In his vulnerability, he sees God's holy power of love. I remember the night I got married. It was a perfect day. We snow skied all day. Then my girlfriends helped me with my makeup and my hair and the lace dress, and we took a bunch of photos, and I was just about ready to go upstairs and walk down the short aisle of that little church. And then my dad came in the bride's dressing room. My friends all exited the room. Dad walked over to me, and he turned his head to the side like he does, and I shuddered. I already knew that dad and mom thought that I was making a big mistake. I already knew that they almost didn't attend the wedding because they disapproved of my groom, who was 16 years my senior, and divorced. I held my breath as dad leaned in to speak, but his voice was quiet, hushed, barely audible, and his voice caught as he practically whispered to me, 
your mother and I have decided to pay for the wedding reception tonight because we love you. And I wept all over his neck. And I remember thinking that now was not the time for weeping as I had no time to readjust the makeup before the wedding. But the tears were holy. They said to me that kneeling down before another person even when you disagree, is one way to let God's love hold you together.